A painter was busily working on the side of a building. His boss was pushing him to hurry. But he told the foreman that he might make a mistake if he was rushed. Painters can do that when they're pushed. It didn't matter, though. The deadline had to be met. And just as the painter had warned, his brush slipped out of his hand and it dropped 40 feet downward toward the floor. The painter leaned over the edge of the scaffold and he saw the brush falling straight toward his boss. And so he started shouting, Quack, quack! Gobble, gobble! And the brush smacked his boss right on the noggin. Paint went splattering everywhere. Well, later, the foreman asked him, he said, Hey, when you dropped the brush, why didn't you warn me? The painter replied, I did warn you. Didn't you hear me shout, duck, turkey? (laughs) Well, that's a pretty lame duck, you might say. A lame duck is a bird that's been shot, but still manages to fly. A lame duck is a politician who loses re-election, but still is serving out his term. Both are still in the air, both are flying, but they're dying, and it won't be long before they hit the ground. The term again is lame duck. The adult Hebrews who had left Egypt became the lame duck generation. After God's miraculous efforts to win their freedom, he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there a band of slaves were equipped to become a great nation. God gave them his law. He established leadership and organization. He taught them how to worship him. And after 13 months, they were ready to enter the land of promise. But in chapters 13 and 14, remember, they balked. They caved in to unbelief. God had proved himself to them over and over in unmistakable ways. But instead of trust the Lord, they acted like a turkey and they failed to enter the promised land. And as a result, God told Moses that the children would enter the land, but not the adults. The generation of Hebrews that exited Egypt wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until they were all dead. Tonight we're looking at the final term of the lame duck generation. They are still flying, but one by one by one, they are dying in the wilderness. We begin tonight in chapter 15, where once again we see the bread and the wine. Now, guys, we're less than four books into the Bible, and we've seen these two communion elements coupled together over and over. You remember in Jesus, in Genesis, the high priest Melchizedek met Abraham with what? With bread and wine. Joseph encountered a baker, the bread, and a butler, or a wine taster, the bread and the wine. The Hebrews celebrated Passover. With what two elements? The bread and the wine. And here again, we see the bread and the wine in the grain offering and in the drink offering. These were supplemental sacrifices usually offered along with the burnt offering or the peace offering. And according to verse 10, they added to the aroma of the sacrifice. I'm certain that anything that speaks of Jesus adds to the aroma of a ritual. Verses 22 through 31 differentiate between unintentional and presumptuous or literally high-handed sins, defiant acts. Instructions are given for how to atone for an unintentional sin, but according to verses 30 and 31, when a person commits an act of defiance, a brazen and deliberate act of rebellion against God, There are no sacrifices to cover such sin. The person is to be immediately punished. The person is to be cut off from the people. In fact, this is what happens in the next few verses, verses 32 through 36. 
A man is out gathering sticks on the Sabbath. A clear violation of the commandment to do no work on the Sabbath day. Moses takes him outside the camp and has him stoned to death, giving new meaning to the old saying, sticks and stones may break my bones. In this case, they did. Remember, the old covenant was an external standard. It had no power to cleanse and transform the inner man. And therefore, an incorrigible person, a defiant sinner, would only grow worse and worse in their rebellion and thus the need for swift and stiff penalties. We can be thankful that under the new covenant, the blood of Jesus covers all our sins. Those that are intentional, those that are unintentional, the subtle, even the high-handed sins. The blood of Jesus is far more potent than the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus forgives us of sin. Then he transforms our inner nature so that we can truly change. Jesus turns the callous heart into a compliant heart. He puts in us a love for God and a love for our fellow man. And thus, sinners are treated differently under the new covenant than under the old covenant. In chapter 16... The Hebrews looked to blame their failure to enter the promised land on Moses and Aaron. As we talked about this morning, man is always looking for a scapegoat. Always looking for someone to blame for his own mistakes. I'm always amazed at the turnover each year among big league baseball managers. At the end of the season, it seems that half the teams fire their managers and the other half of the teams rehire the managers that were just fired. They just swap managers. And why? The manager never walked to the plate all season. He never swung a bat. He never missed a ground ball. He never made an errant throw. But it's always easier to fire one manager than it is to fire 25 players or 50,000 fans. It's just easier to blame the team's troubles on the leader, on the manager. And this is what happens with the Hebrews. They had failed to enter the land of promise, and so they looked for someone to blame. And guess what? They tried to fire the manager. (laughs) They come against Moses and Aaron. And this is a formidable coup d'etat. A man by the name of Korah leads 250 leaders of Israel. These were dignitaries. These were important people in an attempt to unseat Moses and Aaron. In verse 3 of chapter 16, they tell Moses, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? The answer, of course, was obvious. God had called Moses and Aaron to lead the nation. You remember, originally, Moses didn't want the job. God had to overcome his excuses in order for him to accept it. No, Moses and Aaron had been called by God himself to lead the people. There was no doubt. They had been commissioned by God. And since God had called them, God would be the one to remove them, not Korah or the people. And that's how Moses responds. In essence, he says, well, let's just see what God has to say about it. Over the years, I have discovered that God defends his leaders if his leaders are truly devoted to him. Once a group of ladies left church on a Sunday night and they went to Burger King for shakes and apparently for roasted pastor. Pastor Sandy, that is. And one of the ladies confessed to me later that they were sitting around the table just letting me have it. You know, They had all kinds of beefs and criticisms and they were just going to town roasting the pastor. When all of a sudden, a man in the next booth got up, walked over to their table, and said, Hey, I know Sandy Adams, and what you're saying is not true. 
It's nothing but lies and gossip. And someone might hear you and believe it. It's time you knocked it off. Then he went and sat back down. I like to think it was an angel of the Lord. (laughs) But I don't know that for sure. But the ladies got the point. And so did I. If God calls you, he will be faithful to validate and defend your position. Moses says to Korah in verse 5, Tomorrow morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy, and will cause him to come near to him, that one whom he chooses he will cause to come near to him. Do this, take censers. Korah and all your company put fire in them and put incense in them before the Lord tomorrow. And it shall be that the man whom the Lord chooses is the Holy One. And then he adds, you take too much upon yourselves, you sons of Levi. It's sad, but God had allowed the Levites to help the priests in the ministry of the tabernacle. Now they want to take over. You see, it's easy for a person to start out just wanting to help, thankful for the opportunity to serve. But over time, they forget their place and they try to take over. Korah took on a few duties. Now he wants to take over the whole ministry. The next day, and we're not really told at what time, but it must have been at high noon. That's when showdowns take place. Moses drew a line in the sand and he told the people they'd better distance themselves from Korah, Dathan and Abiram, the leaders of the coup. And then he says in verse 28, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But, If the Lord creates a new thing and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. I should say so. And that's exactly what happens. The ground opens up, swallows Korah, and when the 250 leaders who had sided with him try to escape, we're told in verse 35, that a fire comes out from God and consumes them too. Hey, Korah discovered that the attitude that works in business has no place in the family of God. Ministry is not a ladder to climb. Position and authority are not gained by power plays and takeovers. They are handed out by God. And happiness and success in ministry depends on you learning to be content in serving the Lord in the place where He puts you. Climbing the corporate ladder, that attitude has no place in the body of Christ. You'd think that this miracle would have put an end to the criticism, but not so. For in verse 41, we're told that the very next day, the people are at it again, criticizing Moses. This time they're complaining, Moses, you're too harsh. And as a result, God brings another plague that this time kills 14,700 people. And if it were not for the intercession of Moses and the sacrifice of Aaron, the plague may have killed more. Verse 48 says of Aaron, And he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. This is beautiful because it's a picture of Jesus. This is what Jesus has done for us. We're told in Hebrews 7 verse 25 that Jesus is in the heavenly tabernacle interceding for you and me. Our acts of defiance. Our failure to submit to God's authority. Our insistence on our own way. It deserves death. But Jesus has made amends for our sin and he has staved off the judgment of God. And he is standing between the dead and the living. And he has stopped the plague from overtaking us. In chapter 17, God sees 
to it to settle this issue of authority once and for all. All 12 leaders of each of the 12 tribes submit their staffs to Moses. Each man's name is written on his rod, and the rods are laid before God in the tabernacle. And in verse 5, God says, And it shall be that the rod of the man whom I choose will blossom. Thus I will rid myself of the complaints of the children of Israel, which they made against you. You might say God goes out on a limb to decide this question once and for all. And the next day, we're told, Moses enters the tabernacle and he discovers that only Aaron's rod has budded. He doesn't say this, but he probably turned to Aaron, handed him the rod and said, hey, this bud's for you. (laughs) Sorry about that. According to verse 10, Aaron's rod was kept as a sign against the rebels. Hebrews 9 verse 4 tells us that along with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments and the jar of manna, Aaron's rod was kept in the Ark of the Covenant as a perpetual reminder that the priesthood did indeed belong to the family of Aaron. There's another interesting point here about Aaron's rod. You see, a rod or a staff was a former branch. It was a tree trunk at one time. It had been alive, but now it's dead. And in essence, God did to Aaron's rod what he did to his own son on the cross. He brought it back alive. Almonds blossomed. God resurrected Aaron's rod to prove that he was the chosen intercessor. And it's all a type of Jesus. Jesus died but was brought back to life. And his resurrection is proof that he is God's chosen intercessor for all mankind. Hey, the graveyard is full of dead rods. Rods that never blossomed. Buddha, Mohammed, and every other false messiah lie there with no buds. But Jesus is alive. His work is blossoming All over the world, budding in new places every day. Jesus is the only man whom God has authorized to intercede for you and me. He is the only means by which a man can be saved. After Korah's challenge of Moses and Aaron, it was necessary to reorder the relationship between the priesthood and the Levites. And this is what God does in chapter 18. In the previous few chapters, God put the Levites in their place. And now in verse 7, he reminds the priests, I give your priesthood to you as a gift for service. I think we need to remember that. That service in the body of Christ is a gift. It's a privilege. Whenever spiritual service becomes a duty, or a right, or a job, our attitude will begin to deteriorate. Ministry needs to always be viewed as a privilege. Wow, thank you, Lord, that you would be willing to use me. Thank you. In the remainder of the chapter, tithes are commanded to support the priests and the Levites. The service of the tabernacle was a full-time job, and the tribe of Levi was paid a full-time salary. And it's interesting, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, Paul applies this practice to the church. The payment of the Levites is a pattern for paying the pastor of the church. One side note, though, is that the tithes were paid to the Levites, but then the Levites tithe their tithe to the priests. And I think this practice applies to the pastor. Just because a pastor's salary comes from the church's tithes doesn't mean that he shouldn't tithe to the Lord himself. Chapter 19 discusses the mysterious ritual of the ashes of the red heifer. 
a ritual that has puzzled the rabbis for centuries. It was unique. And it varied greatly from the other sacrifices. And I believe it paints a beautiful portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ. The heifer was to be without blemish, never yoked, innocent, just like Jesus. It was to be sacrificed before the high priest. And you remember Jesus too was tried before the high priest, before he was crucified. Then the heifer was burned outside the camp. And likewise, Jesus was sacrificed outside the gates of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6 tells us that the heifer was burned along with three items, a stick of cedar wood, and Jesus was sacrificed on a wooden cross, a piece of hyssop, or the spongy plant. Hyssop was used to moisten Jesus' lips while he was on the cross, and a strip of scarlet, which certainly symbolized the scarlet blood that spilt from Jesus' pierced side. The main distinction, though, with the red heifer versus the other sacrifices was its permanence. All the other sacrifices were repeated continually, except this ritual of the ashes of the red heifer. Only seven red heifers were sacrificed in all Hebrew history. One by Moses, one later by Ezra, and five after Ezra. And so only one heifer was ever offered in any person's single lifetime. And of course, Jesus' sacrifice is able to deal with sin once and forever. Now, this is how the ritual worked. Whenever a person was deemed unclean, the ashes were mixed with running water. Then a branch of hyssop was dipped into the solution, and the ashes and water solution was sprinkled on that which needed to be cleansed. This is a powerful picture of the work of Jesus Christ. You think about it. How can the work of a man 2,000 years ago affect a man or woman today? That's interesting. How does that happen? Well, the answer is symbolized in this ritual. Throughout the Bible, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Hyssop is a type of the Word of God. And here's how New Testament purification works. The effects of the cross, the ashes, are mixed with the power of the Holy Spirit and then applied to a person's heart when they put faith in the Word of God. The effects of the cross are carried by the power of the Holy Spirit, sprinkled by the Word of God. And the ritual speaks of how Christ works in our hearts today. Of course, this ritual produced a ceremonial cleansing, but the real McCoy, Jesus Christ, affects a spiritual cleansing in the heart of the person who believes in Him. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, makes reference to this sacrifice of the red heifer. There it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The ashes of the red heifer also figures into end-time events. Since the rebuilt temple in the last days will need to be purified with this mixture of ashes and running water, there are rabbis today who are trying to breed an actual red heifer. According to rabbinical tradition, a heifer does not qualify if just two of the hairs are not red. And so it's taking some time. But it's interesting that this breeding is going on even as we speak. And it's a necessary prerequisite for the rebuilding and the dedication of the temple that the Antichrist will sit in and claim to be God. It's all a precursor of the last day's events described in the Bible, and we're seeing it fulfilled even before our eyes. Thirty-eight years expire between chapters 19 and 20. And what happens during those 38 years? 
Well, read the blank line between the two chapters. Nothing happens in a blank line. And that's the whole point. For 38 years, the Hebrews wander. No meaningful progress is made until the old geezers die off. It's the longest funeral procession in history. And at least 100 people died each day during those 38 years. But in chapter 20, the Pepsi generation takes over. A new generation. But they start out singing the same old song. Look at verse 3. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died with our brethren, died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? Is it not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates? There is, nor is there any water to drink. Like Father like son. Remember in Exodus 17, the same situation occurred shortly after the first generation had left Egypt. They came to a place where there was no water supply. And the people began to complain to Moses. And in response, God told Moses to strike a rock. And when he did, a miracle took place. And life-sustaining H2O gushed out of that rock. We can only imagine Moses' frustration now. Here we go again. Haven't you kids learned anything? 38 years ago, we went through this with your fathers. Don't you know that God takes care of his people? He did it once. He'll do it again. And Moses was steamed. His patience was wearing thin. But God had mercy on his people. He shows the generation Xers the same love and grace he showed the baby boomers. And in verse 8, God tells Moses to speak to the rock and water will flow. But here's what Moses does. Verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now you rebels. Must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. And water came out abundantly and the congregation and their animals drank. But listen to what God tells Moses now in verse 12. He says, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. Moses made a mistake that cost him dearly. He misrepresented God. Moses comes out screaming at them. He calls them rebels. Moses vents 38 years of frustration. But this was not God's attitude. God loved these people. God was starting over. And God would be just as merciful and just as patient and just as generous with this new generation as he had been with their parents. God told Moses to speak to the rock. Instead, Moses struck it. And this is what Moses didn't realize. His rash act marred a beautiful picture that God wanted to paint for future generations. Even for us today. For later, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that Paul speaks of the rock in the wilderness and says, that rock was Christ. And Jesus needed to be struck, how many times? Twice? No. Jesus needed to be struck But once he died once and for all for the remission of sin. Today, we receive forgiveness in Christ when we do what? When we simply ask, when we speak to the rock. Moses, though, spoiled the symbolism. 
He marred the picture. In essence, he took crayons out and colored all over the Rembrandt. He misrepresented God, and it cost him. And because of his disobedience, Moses was excluded from entering the promised land. Moses gets them to the border, but it takes Joshua to get them across. Not only is ministry a privilege, ministry is also a responsibility. And when God calls you to serve in the church, be certain your job is to represent Him. Hey, ministry is full of frustration. All too often, people aren't receptive. People aren't appreciative. People don't live up to the truth that you give them. And the servant of God is tempted to lose his patience. But it's the leader's job not to express his opinion or vent his frustration. His job is to represent God. And God has enormous patience. God's love and mercy and patience are boundless. And the job of any servant of God is to represent the Lord, not his own opinion and his own feelings. And this is where Moses blew it. And it cost him. In the latter half of chapter 20, Aaron dies and his son Eleazar assumes the role of high priest. And Moses begins to march the nation northward. Their first confrontation with the Canaanites occurs at Arad, where they win a great victory. But Moses decides to enter Canaan from the east instead of from the south. And so he speaks to the Edomites about letting the Hebrews pass through their borders. Their king, though, refuses. And so he heads south in order to swing around the land of Edom. And it seems to the people that they are going backwards rather than forwards. They are regressing rather than progressing. Call it the Atlanta Falcon Syndrome. And in chapter 21, verse 5, again, the people begin to grumble. They're good at this. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. And so the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Immediately, though, the people admit their sin, and God Moses asked God to intercede on their behalf. And in verses 8 and 9, the Lord gives Moses a strange remedy for this plague. He says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now this was a strange remedy. And it's hard to understand until we get to John 3, verses 14 and 15. For there Jesus gives us some interesting insight into Numbers chapter 21. Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself sees in these instructions in Numbers another portrait of his work upon the cross. But here the symbolism gets a little tricky. In Scripture, bronze is a symbol for judgment. But the serpent is a symbol for sin or Satan. The venom of sin now flows through the spiritual veins of every man. It produces death. So why would Jesus be represented as a symbol of sin, a serpent? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 gives us the answer, there we're told that Jesus was made sin for us. Jesus took ownership of our sin and died in our place. On the cross of Christ, God judged sin and Satan. They were penalized. Their power was destroyed. 
And now all a man needs to do to be healed of the venom of sin is what the Hebrews needed to do to be healed of the viper's poison. Just look in faith to where sin has been judged. Trust in the cross of Jesus Christ and you too will be saved. In chapter 21, Moses continues his march around Edom. East of the Jordan, he defeats two kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. The Hebrews are on a roll, and it frightens Balak, king of Moab. Imagine two to three million people camping out in your backyard. That would make a rival king just a little antsy. On top of the sheer numbers, the word is now out how God had delivered the Hebrews from Egypt, his miracles, how he had protected them in the wilderness. All of the miracles throughout their wandering was now common knowledge. And so Balak knows that his army is outnumbered, that the God of the Hebrews is a mighty God. And so he calls in some special forces of his own. Balak sends messengers to fetch a Babylonian soothsayer by the name of Balaam. Now, a soothsayer or a wizard or a sorcerer was a person steeped in the occult. And they tried to alter the physical world through supernatural means, even if that meant consorting with a demon. These guys would use spells and incantations and other occult techniques to bribe the demons to do their bidding and to accomplish their purposes. And often people would go out and they would employ a sorcerer to help them in a particular situation. And that's what brought Balak to Balaam. Balaam was a soothsayer for hire. Balaam was really a strange character. He knew of the one true God, but he dabbled in witchcraft. He straddled the fence, in essence, between good and evil to sell his services to the highest bidder. Certainly, God disapproved of his practices. Eventually, God judges him, and yet God still used him. Balaam is given some of the most beautiful prophecies in all the Old Testament, prophecies that speak of the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Balaam is proof that God can use anyone. He's also proof that just because God uses you doesn't mean that God approves of everything else that you're doing. God might use some of those evangelists on television, but that doesn't mean that he approves of their lifestyle or their antics. Balaam proves that God can use anyone, including a soothsayer or his donkey. When Balak's men show up at Balaam's house, they come with the standard diviner's fee. And they ask Balaam to come with them to help Balak curse the Israelites. In verse 6 they say, Please come at once, curse this people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, And he whom you curse is cursed. Balak wants the soothsayer to cast a curse on Israel that will ensure him a victory. But God speaks to Balaam and tells him clearly not to go. King Balak, though, is persistent. He sweetens the pot. He sends messengers again and ups the ante. This time Balaam tells them in verse 18, Though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Boy, he wants the money. But he tells them again, Please, you also stay here tonight that I may know what more the Lord will say to me. He he says, I can't do anything that God doesn't allow me to do. And he's already told me not to go. But you stay here, maybe he'll change his mind, because I really want that money. I thought the Lord had already made his answer pretty clear to Balaam. Don't go. Verse 20 tells us that God came to Balaam at night and said to him, 
If the men come to call you, rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. Did anyone come to him that night? No. But we're told Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. He went anyway. And he disobeyed the Lord. And what happens next is intriguing. Three times the angel of the Lord stands in Balaam's way. But each time only his donkey sees the angel. Balaam is a spiritist. But his jackass has more spiritual discernment than he does. And that's probably the case with most so-called spiritists or palm readers or fortune tellers or psychics or channelers. Each time the donkey swerves off the path to avoid the angel, Balaam gets angry at the donkey. He starts beating his burrow. It's not the poor donkey's fault. He's to blame. But he takes out his frustrations on the most convenient target, his donkey. And finally, the donkey swerves to miss the angel and Balaam hits a wall. Have you hit a wall lately in your life? Maybe God knows you're headed in the wrong direction. And maybe the things that have happened to derail you are God's way of redirecting you back in line, getting your attention. Balaam should have been thankful that the donkey was swerving out of the way of the angel. Instead, Balaam went ballistic. He kept beating his donkey, beating him with a stick. When suddenly God does a miracle. And verse 28 is my own personal life verse. The Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. That sums up my ministry in a nutshell right there. (laughs) God opens the mouth of the donkey. And the donkey begins to speak. But then God does a second miracle, an even greater miracle. Verse 31, the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. The only miracle tougher than opening the mouth of a donkey is opening the eyes of a stubborn, self-centered, sinful man. And God does both in this chapter. Guys, how often do we beat our burrow? Do we get out of God's will and as a result life gets hard, we run into walls. And rather than consider our own mistakes, rather than look at our own lives and the direction we've taken, we vent our anger and we take out our frustrations on our most convenient targets, usually the wife or the husband or the kids or the boss or the co-worker. In verse 34, Balaam repents. He offers to turn back. But the angel tells him to go with the men of Moab, but only the word that I speak to you, that you shall speak. And in the next two chapters, 23 and 24, Balaam utters four prophecies. Incredible prophecies, really. For they are laced with references to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Four times Balak hopes that the soothsayer will curse Israel, but instead, each time, he blesses them. And Balak has to pay for it. Notice Balaam's first prophecy, chapter 23, verse 8. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Even a soothsayer, who happens to be on the clock, by the way, has to admit that any supernatural or demonic power has to be subject to the power of God. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. In his second prophecy, Balaam says in verse 19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed and I cannot reverse it. He says in verse 23, For there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. Guys, no one can curse the man or group that God has chosen to bless. Evil curses and incantations are powerless against God's people. 
The fourth prophecy is perhaps the most intriguing. In chapter 24, verse 17, Balaam utters, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. Here is a prediction of both the first and second comings of Jesus Christ. Balaam sees a person rising up over the landscape of Israel's future. The Messiah will rise from the house of Jacob. His scepter and authority is tied to Israel. He will sit on the throne of David, and he will one day destroy the wicked. And here, 1,440 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Balaam sees him, but not now. He beholds him, but not near. He predicts Jesus' appearance. Balak has tried now four times to curse Israel. But each time, Balaam has blessed God's people. And in Numbers 24, verse 25, we're told, So Balaam rose and departed and returned to his place, and Balak also went his way. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Look at chapter 25, verse 1. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. And they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. And so Israel was joined to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. The best commentary on the Bible is always the Bible. And in Revelation chapter 2, verse 14, there it speaks of Balaam, and this is what it says. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. God wouldn't let Balaam curse Israel, so Balak, Balaam told Balak, what to do so that God himself would curse Israel. And that's how he made his money. He told him, hey, just send a few of your beautiful babes down into the camp. Bring out a few of the temple prostitutes. And the Hebrews will sell their soul for a few moments of sexual pleasure and God will be angry with them and he will curse them. And that's exactly what Balak did. And sad to say, the Hebrews fell for the seduction and they committed adultery and were thus led into idolatry and God cursed them. Balaam was right. For we're told in verse 4, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And so Moses said to the judges of Israel, Every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. God wanted to make examples out of these idolaters. Verse 6 tells us, One of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. This was a brazen act of open defiance and rebellion. And so when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose from among the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent. And this is the only time in the Old Testament that this particular word for tent appears, and it has caused some Bible scholars to believe that the man had actually taken the woman into the tabernacle, into God's holy tent. And Phinehas thrust both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through her body. I suppose they got the point. And so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel. And those who died in the plague were 24,000. It took decisive action from Phineas to stop the plague. And sometimes a situation gets so desperate that someone has to say enough is enough and do something drastic 
to stop the rebellion. In verses 10 and 13, God commends Phineas for his actions because he was zealous with my zeal. I believe that we need to adopt an enough is enough attitude. We need the zeal of the Lord, not to take life, no, not to take life. But we need the zeal of the Lord to spread the words of life. People are dying. People need the gospel. This world is going to hell in a handbasket. Some of us need to rise up and say, enough is enough. And do something drastic. Be zealous. Risk our reputation in order to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to spread the words of life to as many people as we can. In chapter 26, God commands a second census. The book of Numbers ends and begins with Moses numbering the nation. In chapter 27, we read of a situation that demonstrates the faith of the second generation. For unlike their fathers, they believed that they would possess the land. And their faith shows up here in a squabble. Something they do well. But at least their faith shows up. A quarrel occurs over the issue of inheritance. In most ancient cultures, only the men could own land. But four daughters want their father's parcel once they get into the land of promise. And so they take their case to Moses. And in verse 5, Moses takes it before the Lord. And the Lord sides with the daughters of Zelophehad. And the moral of the story is this. Just because the man is in charge at home and church doesn't mean that God never sides with his daughters. Often he does. And so, ladies, take your case to Moses and to the Lord. And if you're right, the Lord will honor you and he will side with you and you'll be heard and validated. The end of chapter 27 is the end of the road for Moses. And in verses 12 and 13, God tells him, Go up into this Mount Abiram and see the land which I have given to the children of Israel. And when you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother was gathered. Now note, he isn't told that he's going to die. Certainly that's what's implied. But rather than use the word death, he's told that he'll be gathered to your people. In other words, there is life beyond the grave and you're going to join them. Moses ascends Mount Abiram. Abiram was actually the mountain range. Its highest peak was Mount Nebo, which rises 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea on the northeast shore. And from there, Moses could see into the Jordan Valley. He could see the promised land. He would see it, but he would not enter into it. But what's on Moses' mind? Even in his last days, what preoccupies his attention? He is concerned for the children of Israel. And he prays in verse 16. Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, set a man over the congregation who may go out before them and go in before them, who may lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may be like sheep which have no shepherd, may not be like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Set him before Eleazar the priest and before all the congregation and inaugurate him in their sight. And so a new leader is appointed by God, Joshua. In chapters 28 and 29, Moses describes the types and number of sacrifices offered at the various feasts. The annual feast called for a minimum of 1,269 sacrifices. Imagine the animals that were killed over the 1,500-year duration of the Hebrew sacrificial system. It's true that the Old Covenant literally floated on a sea of blood. Numbers 30, verse 2, describes the importance of a vow. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. This includes marital vows. This includes business agreements. 
This even includes promises you make to your kids. If you take a vow, if you make a promise, it's important to God that you keep your word. The rest of the chapter addresses a woman's vow. Vows are still important, of course, but under the Mosaic law, special consideration was given to a woman's vow, for a woman was under the authority of her father and then later her husband. And thus, if a woman made a vow that the man didn't like, then he could void the vow as soon as he found out about it and he took action on it. And this is why parents today should have the right to void any agreement that their kids rashly enter into and not allow them to check out certain videos and so forth. And there are husbands who wish this applied to their wife's credit card purchases. But it doesn't. It really doesn't. Chapter 31 is Moses' last hurrah. He leads the nation against the Midianites. And these were the people who, along with the Moabites, hired Balaam to curse Israel. In fact, look at the casualty list in verse 8. They killed the kings of Midian with the rest of those who were killed. Evi, Recham, Zur, Hur, and Reba, the five kings of Midian. And guess what? Balaam, the son of Beor, they also killed with the sword. In contrast, look at the Hebrew casualty list in verse 49. And they said to Moses, Your servants have taken account of the men of war who are under our command, and not a man of us is missing. Balaam lined up on the wrong side of the ball, didn't he? Balaam sold his soul for a few dollars. But his wealth was short-lived, for it ended up falling into the hands of the Hebrews. Guys, it never pays to sell out your integrity and, and betray the truth of God. Not at any price. In Numbers 32, three tribes decide to take their inheritance on the east bank of the Jordan River. Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh. But this angers the Lord, and he tells them why in verse 7. Why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? In other words, these three tribes quit just before the finish line. The nation is on the brink of blessing, and they want to settle for second best. And guys, so often this is our problem. Rather than going all the way with God, we get right on the brink of blessing. And since the brink of blessing is better than the sink or stink of sin, we figure that's as far as we need to go. And so we stop short. But don't do it. Press on. Have faith. Enter into all the goodness that God has for you. These two and a half tribes cut a deal with Moses. They'll fight with the other tribes until all the land has been won. Then they'll return to the East Bank. Now, if you think your family has moved a lot in your lifetime, I doubt if you compare to the Hebrews. For we find in chapter 33 that the children of Israel moved 42 times in their 40 years in the wilderness. How's that for a mobile society? The rest of the book consists of last-minute instructions that Moses leaves with the nation before he and the nation part company. It's been said, if it weren't for the last minute, nothing would ever get done. And so last-minute instructions are important. And he hits on a number of topics at the end of the book of Numbers. In chapter 33, verse 55, Moses warns them, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. This is also a warning to us. Guys, when you ignore a sin that God wants to delete from your life, it ends up becoming an irritant and a thorn. The habit 
the place that you frequent, the bad influence that you entertain, if you continue to tolerate it, it will end up constantly harassing you and defeating you. I know believers who get so pestered, so defeated in their spiritual life, that they end up giving up on God. But who's to blame? They are. They're the one that has chosen to live with the enemy rather than drive it out. Don't you make the same mistake. In chapter 34, Moses becomes a surveyor and he outlines for Israel the land that God expects them to occupy once they enter the boundaries of Canaan. And he plots out the exact boundaries. Rather than farm or herd sheep, the Levites are supported by the tithes of the people. And thus God doesn't give them a portion of the land. In fact, in Numbers 18 verse 20 we read, where the Levites and priests, where God would be their inheritance. And yet they need somewhere to live. And so God appoints them 48 cities throughout the land that will become Levitical cities. And six of these Levitical cities will become what's called cities of refuge. And we'll talk more about both when we get over to Joshua chapters 20 and 21. And finally, in chapter 36, Moses keeps his word to those four daughters of Zelophehad. And there we have our summary of the book of Numbers.